This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Page 138, the middle of chapter 9 Till now we learned about the two souls the tale of two souls, the two souls that each and every Jew has within them, two different centers of motivation, of energy. We have a godly soul, a divine soul, and then we have the ego, ego soul, natural soul, the animal soul. And he described the essence of each soul, he described the personality, the characteristic traits of each soul, he described the ways of the expression of each soul, and, and at the beginning of the chapter, we learn where these souls are headquartered or located or concentrated on. The godly soul is basically concentrated in the mind. It all begins with awareness. The animal soul, the ego soul, concentrated in the heart, especially the left side of the heart. It pumps the blood. Because blood, the passion, the vitality, the will to live, um, self-preservation, ego... And the center for the godly soul is the brain, as well as the right side of the heart. The feeling and love for Hashem. Now he's going to discuss the wrestling match, or the struggle, between these two souls. Now that we have two souls, it's not that each soul has a certain domain, a certain territory, and it's happy sitting at, living at peace with its neighbors. Every soul wants to completely dominate, wants to be the exclusive, ex- exclusively in charge and in control. And this creates the tremendous tension we feel inside, conflict and friction, because we have these two souls that are at each other. Married. <laughs> Well, we hope not. <laughs> These, uh, the classical example, biblical example, is the wrestling match between Yaakov and Esau. Why was Yaakov called Yaakov? Because Yaakov grabbed on to the heel of Esau. They were twins. Esau came out, came out first, and Yaakov grabbed on to his soul, came out grabbing on to his foot. And it's a wrestling match... A constant wrestling match, even in the mother's womb, in Rebecca's womb, they were wrestling with each other. Rebecca was very worried. And she went to the prophet to find out what's going on. And this is, this is the story. From its inception, these two are at each other. Because it's not that Yaakov is satisfied, Jacob is satisfied with the world to come, with the spiritual world. And Esau is satisfied with the material world. Each one wants everything. It's a fight until the finish. It's, it's, everyone wants the, the uh, complete, complete control 
and the unconditional surrender of the, of, the, of the opposition of the enemy. So these two souls are in conflict. These two souls are, are enemies fighting with each other. And the truth is, there's only one way to win this battle. Now, it would seem that this conflict is really an unfair conflict because it seems to be that the Yetzirah, the ego soul, the natural soul, has a head, firstly it has a head start because it enters into our being the moment we're born. Ego comes naturally. You don't have to go to school to acquire an ego. To be selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed and self-indulgent, it comes naturally, very naturally. While the godly soul only enters into our awareness at the age of 12 for a, for a girl, bat mitzvah, the age of 13, uh, for a boy, bar mitzvah, when the child reaches puberty, and which is a sign of maturity that the mind starts opening up and they be, could begin to sense a spiritual reality. And they be, begin to become aware in a mature way, in a responsible way, could become aware of a purpose, a divine purpose. And start asking the questions, why am I here? What's my purpose? And what's the meaning in life? And to discover something deeper than just the surface. So firstly, it seems that the animal soul has a head start. 13 to 12 year head start. Secondly, as the great Hasidic master and Rebbe, Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Abadichev, once cried out to God, he says, you know, he says, if you would have put divine passion in before before the naked eye, and you would have put materialistic attractions between the book covers, then maybe it would be an, an equal struggle. Instead, you put all the distractions, all the materialistic attractions you put before the naked eye. And spirituality and godliness you place between the book covers. It's an unequal battle. It's not fair. So it seems to be an unequal struggle. It seems like all the odds are against the divine soul, are against the godly soul. And that's the classical struggle between Yaakov and Esau. Who is the firstborn? Who is stronger? Which one is primary? Superficially, Esau is born first. He comes first. He is the brute strength he represents. He's the, he's the first one. He is strong. But then we learn and discover Yaakov, Jacob, buys the birthright. Jacob discovers that he's truly the firstborn. As the rabbis explain, they give the analogy. When you put a pebble, two pebbles in a funnel, it says the pebble that comes first leaves last. When you turn over the funnel, the pebble that was put in first comes last. The rabbis say that at the root and at the source, Jacob was really the firstborn. In other words, he was conceived first. He was conceived first, and that's why he came out second. Meaning at the root and at the source, Jacob is truly the firstborn. And it's Jacob's mission to reveal, to buy the birthright, and to reveal that he is truly the firstborn. And that's the analogy within us, the Jacob and the Esau inside of each and every one of us. We have these two souls that are wrestling with each other. They're in conflict, this tremendous tension from inception. And it appears overtly, it appears superficially that the, the animal soul, the ego soul, the natural soul is much more powerful. It's overwhelmingly powerful. But the truth of the matter is, at the root and at the source, 
the divine soul is, 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 is more powerful. And the analogy is, it's like light and dark. The nature of light is that a little light dispels and illuminates a lot of darkness. And it doesn't even have to, it doesn't even have to struggle. You light a little candle and the darkness just melts away. You can be in a huge tunnel, pitch black. You light a tiny match, you can see the whole thing. Why does light have such power? Because light is the essence. Light is the substance. Light is reality. What's darkness? Darkness is the void. Darkness is the absence of light. So when you fill the light, there's no room for darkness. The darkness just melts away and disappears. So the divine soul, at the root and at the source, the divine soul represents substance, represents reality, truth. Unyielding truth. So when, when the divine soul is like a candle, when you light the candle, when you learn, do a mitzvah, or you study a little Torah, or you do a good deed, or just the divine soul, its very being, its essence, you light a candle, it illuminates the darkness. That's why the Jewish people are compared to the stars. Because the stars light up the night. The Jewish soul has the ability to light up the darkness. And the darkness just melts away and dissipates and disappears. Because although it appears that we're overwhelmed by darkness, but you remember it's just, it's just a void, it's empty. This is substance. And therefore, even though, despite the fact that the godly soul enters into our awareness, into our consciousness, through the mind, which is the seat and the headquarters of the divine soul, only at the age of 13 or 12, and the animal soul, the eagle soul, has such a head start. And despite the fact that it appears to be that there's such power and strength and energy in the animal soul, in the ego soul. It's more energy on Wall Street than any synagogue I've ever been to. So you would think that we're overwhelmed by all this darkness. How can the divine soul, the godly soul, this whispering voice of consciousness, this, this little subtle, subtle voice, how can it overcome the powerful temptations and distractions? And... But the truth is nothing could be further than the truth. This is part of the con, part of the deception of the appearance of this world. Nothing is, nothing is the way it appears to be. It's just the opposite. The divine soul, that substance, that's reality. And one little mitzvah, one little good deed has the power to overwhelm a great amount of darkness. So it, not only isn't it, is it an equal fight, but the divine soul has enough strength, enough energy to overcome the negativity. And we see that. That at the root and at the source, although our attraction to materialism is very engaging and it's a very powerful attraction. But the truth is, our attachment to spirituality and godliness is much deeper. Because yes, people naturally want you know, instant gratification, and, but are they ready to risk their life for that instant gratification? Not necessarily. But people are ready to risk their life, to make the ultimate sacrifice for things that matter to them, for their principles, for their convictions, to give their children an education. For things that really matter to them, they're ready to sacrifice, they're ready to forego superficial things. So you see that a person's attachment to spirituality and godliness is much deeper, much more profound than meets the eye. It's much more powerful. So yes, it may appear superficially that the attraction to materialism, money, power, fame, and gratification is very powerful. 
versus the godly soul is a whispering voice of conscience, is gentle, uh, subtle voice. That's how can this little voice overcome the tremendous amount of darkness? But the truth is, there's tremendous force and tremendous power and depth to spirituality. This the spiritual spiritual voice is not such a lemachal as it appears to be. Yaakov was not this little innocent child that Esav made him out to be. That he's you know he's a he's a pushover. When push came to shove, Jacob ended up being the firstborn, and he he was the one who was successful because he's not a pushover. The strength and the depth of commitment and the loyalty and the fierce connection that we have to our convictions, to our principles, to values the thing that really matter to us is very powerful it's like, it's like the godly soul is compared to water water that flows water is very calm, that's just the nature of water very calm until you try to stop the water put a dam try to stop the water and this calm water suddenly becomes ferocious and it will, it will ride over the dam and push the dam along with the water. The, this calm waters becomes a roaring, a roaring ocean, a roaring wave that pushes everything in its path. And it becomes part of that, what formerly was an obstacle, now becomes part of the, of the current, the powerful current. And that's the story of the godly soul. The godly soul is, yes, it's subtle, it's calm, it's gentle, the whispering voice of conscience, until you put it down. The ego, the animal soul, that blocks it, that tries to headlock it and tries to limit it and doesn't allow it to express itself and struggles and snipes at it. Now suddenly this gentle Jacob, this gentle voice of conscience becomes a mighty, powerful, forceful, roaring, roaring current that nothing can stop it, nothing can get in its way. So it, so. Our mission is really to reveal that Jacob is really the firstborn. Is really at the root of the source. It's much more powerful and much deeper than it's rooted much deeper than our connection to materialism. Although it's very attractive and, and also very powerful and overwhelming, but nevertheless, it's not as powerful, not as deep rooted as our connection to spirituality. But we have to reveal that. So this is the struggle the eternal struggle between Jacob and Esau, the Jew, the non-Jew, and also within us, between the ego and the divine soul. Each one wants to completely dominate the entire city. What's the city? The city is the person. We are the arena of the struggle. The godly soul wants to completely dominate and wants to completely, wants the entire person to express the mind of the person should be um, engaged in comprehending and understanding godliness. The heart of the person should be on fire with a flaming passion to godliness. And all the limbs of the person, the hands, the feet, the thought, the speech, or the action should be expressing godly deeds, Jewish deeds, speaking like a Jew, thinking like a Jew, acting like a Jew, wholesome deeds, like you mentioned earlier, wholesome food, wholesome deeds, wholesome thought, wholesome, wholesome speech. While the animal soul, the egotistical soul, is the reverse. The egotistical soul wants to completely dominate the person, that the person's mind should be engaged in cunning and figuring out how to advance your pleasures, your heart, 
should be, you know, just feel free to just pursue your heart and follow any instinct you have. And your actions, your behavior, just indulge. Just like you have drunk food, you have drunk lifestyle. Drunk food, drunk lifestyle. And just live for the moment, enjoy, and live a carefree life. No responsibilities, no thought of past, present, future. Just live for the moment. And, and this, is, this is really the, uh, this is the pursuit of the ego. The ego's pursuit is self-gratification, which can take many forms. It doesn't only necessarily mean living, living a carefree life. It can mean uh, making a name for yourself. It can mean becoming, uh, becoming a billionaire. It could be whatever, or acquiring power. But that's the goal of your life. Your whole goal is focused on me, myself, and I. My ego. My self-preservation. Without any thought any consciousness of anything beyond myself. And these two can never make peace. They can never be a detente. There's no Oslo's. There's no sitting down and having tea and coffee and making peace. Let's get along with the enemy. So the bad news is the conflict, the conflict is there. You can't ignore the conflict. But the good news is there's only one way to resolve a conflict. And that is for the godly soul to win. Because the animal soul, the ego soul, cannot win. If the ego wins, the godly soul will always be miserable. The godly soul can never make peace with that type of existence. It can. It can, it can still go under hiding, and go underground. It can be buried, submerged, but it'll never make peace. There'll always be a place deep down inside of us that will always, our conscience will bother us. There's a spark of consciousness left that will bother us. And some place deep down that may be so buried that we don't even feel it anymore because some people seem to have no conscience, almost psychotic, and seem to lose any, have no conscience. But there is a place deep down where we all have a conscience. We can, we can sedate ourselves, but we don't feel it anymore. We don't listen to it anymore. We can drown it out. That's why society has gotten so loud because... You have to drown out any voice of consciousness. You, have to, you need more distraction, 24-7, constant distraction. Because the moment you'll keep silent for one moment, you'll hear that voice of conscience. And so the godly soul can never make peace. Can never make peace. Can never settle and be happy. Impossible. Can never make peace. It can never be happy with the status quo. The only way that could work is the reverse could work. The ego... The animal soul could be happy when it allows itself to be conquered and to be vanquished by the godly soul. Because when a person listens to his divine consciousness, listens to that whispering, gentle, subtle voice of conscience, and follows the dictates of the divine soul, and leads a healthy, wholesome life, thinks like a Jew, speaks like a Jew, acts like a Jew, only wholesome things, doesn't lie, speaks the truth, lives the truth, your inside matches your outside, your outside matches your inside, a consistent life. You may have to discipline yourself. It may be difficult. But at the end of the day, you'll, you'll be happy. It's the only decent way to live. It's the only wholesome way to live. It's the only way to reconcile this conflict. That the godly soul has to win. When the godly soul wins, the animal soul is very happy. And the proof is in the pudding. The story of the Jewish people. We're around for 3,800 years. 
every Jew that's alive today is because our parents, our ancestors, without any interruption for 3,800 years, lived a Torah life. So you see that when the animal soul follows and obeys the godly soul and does the right thing, it works in the real world. It's practical, it's wholesome, and all levels, and all dimensions, emotionally and psychologically and mentally and spiritually and physically, it's practical, it works, it's real, it fits, and, and you feel very good about it. It's a healthy lifestyle. It's just a very healthy lifestyle. And a good lifestyle, and it feels good. Yes, it may be you have certain boundaries, you have certain restrictions, you have certain limits. It takes discipline. It takes presence of mind. It takes courage. It takes strength. But at the end of the day, your animal soul may be begrudging, but it's satisfied. It's content. You may have to force yourself to do the right thing, but at the end of the day, you sleep like a baby at night. When you do the right thing, no one ever regrets doing the right thing. And if you reach a higher level, you can even get the animal soul to eagerly and enthusiastically be attracted and, and want, to, want to live this lifestyle. That's already a deeper level. Where you have sublimated your animal soul, sublimated your ego, the ego begins to appreciate the beauty and the nobility of a godly way of life. That's, that's already, that's the... That's for the mystic. That's for the person who really gets deeply involved who can reach that level. But even the average person, let's say, doesn't reach a level where the animal soul is on fire, the ego is on fire and is running to the synagogue and is running to do Torah and is running to do a mitzvah and to part with his money and to be selfless and kind. Fine. And it's a discipline. It's a struggle. It's a conflict. But there's a sense of contentment. You do the right thing at the end of the day, you're happy, you're content. You feel whole inside, you feel good inside, you've done the right thing. It was tough, it was difficult, but at the end of the day, you feel good. So the only way to really resolve this conflict, there's only one way, and that's for the godly soul to win this conflict. We live in a day and age where conflict is the enemy. It seems that the ideal today is Everyone wants to reach nirvana. Vegetate. Reach a level where there's no conflict. That's not a Jewish ideal. Noah's name was, was Noah comes from the word tranquility. This week's Torah portion. Tranquility, serenity. But he's not a Jew. Noah was not a Jew. That's not the Jewish ideal. The Jewish ideal is not serenity, tranquility. As a matter of fact, the Torah says that the tzaddik does not have peace. No peace and no tranquility. Not in this world, not in the world to come. Life is a struggle. For the tzaddik? For everyone. Especially the tzaddik. Life is a struggle. The tzaddik struggle is a different struggle than our struggle. But life is not about tranquility, serenity. Life is comfort. Everyone on their own level. The tzaddik's conflict is to go from good to even better. He doesn't have to deal with negativity. But life on any level is a struggle. There's no going away from it. That's, that's the definition of life. Because there's always a struggle between the potential and the actual. Even for the tzaddik. What, however great the tzaddik is, his potential is much greater than, than his actual. So there's always a struggle. The potential is struggling to reach the actual. And the moment you reach the actual, there's a deeper potential. It's an endless struggle. God is infinite. So the struggle is infinite. 
Life is a struggle. That's the Jewish idea. This is the Jewish idea. Life is a struggle. When God created the world, it says He left Adam in the Garden of Eden. La Veda, to work. Man was created to work. Work is not a curse. The fact that life is a struggle and takes effort and work, that's the nature, that's human. That's the biggest gift that God can give us. Because it's only when you have to exert yourself, when it takes effort, that you feel that you own it. You feel accomplished. When something is handed to you on a silver platter, you feel, feel like a slap in the face. You don't appreciate it. Could you compare someone who won the lottery ticket? May it happen to all of us. And someone who wins, who earns a million dollars through his hard work and effort, through his creativity, through his, his, you know, how could you compare the satisfaction? This one spent a dollar, walked into the store and got lucky. And this one worked and worked hard. Something that a person owns, there's a satisfaction. You own it, there's a satisfaction. So the Zohar says that the soul, before the soul comes into this world, the soul in heaven has no conflict. There's no Yetzirah, everything is clear, everything is illuminated, everything is crystal clear. But you know what? It's like a slap in the face. Everything is handed in a silver platter. The soul comes into this world because here we have to struggle. Here it's a conflict. Every step of the way is a struggle. So every good deed that we do, we own it. Because we have to sweat for it. We have to roll up our sleeve. We have to pay a price. We have to sacrifice for it. And therefore we own it. We've, we're invested in it. It's personal. And it's rewarding and it's satisfying. So life is a struggle. That, and that's not a punishment that occurs. On the contrary. That, the Torah mentions it before the curse. Other when he was in the Garden of Eden. That his purpose in life is to work. Man was created to work, to accomplish, to achieve. That's a blessing. That's the ultimate blessing that God can give us. That we can feel like we are creators, that we're doers, we've created something, we've honest labor, honest work, we've accomplished something. So the fact Judaism tells us this is the foundation of Judaism. Life is a struggle. Life is a conflict. And it's, it's a perennial conflict between the ego and the divine. We have a part of us that's sublime, we have a part of us uh, that's that's that could be beastly within the same person. Person shouldn't be shocked. Am I schizophrenic? We have two different souls, conflicting souls. One soul is sublime, wants to go upward, aspires for purity, for innocence, for wholesomeness, for depth, for goodness, for genuineness. And then we have another soul that's the force of gravity, it's looking for instant gratification, it's looking for the lowest common denominator, something materialistic, fun, pleasurable, fun-seeking, thrill-seeking, pleasure-seeking, and that's what life is all about. So we have these two centers within us. And each center wants to completely conquer the person. Once the person is not satisfied, is restless, till the entire person is in tune with, with, with that soul. So there's a clash, there's a war. It's not the war against terrorists. <laughs> this is the, the inner war, the inner struggle that, that is forever. So knowing that and understanding where, what this is all about, you know, can put us at ease. You know, we, can, we, can, we understand the inner dynamics, what, what's going on, why we have this constant friction, this constant tension, this constant struggle. The same, with the same person, and once we're pulled in this direction, then we're pulled in a different direction. 
you know, there are things within us that are very noble and very special and very refined, and then there are things within us that are very, that are the opposite. We're not proud of, within the same person, but it's it's two different souls, and each soul wants to conquer the other soul. The divine soul will not rest until it has subdued, has subdued the enemy. And that's the, that's why the, the soul is restless. That's why we feel guilty all the time. Jews especially. You know, the, you know they send home the, uh, the Yiddish mama, they send, they send her home from jury duty. Because she insisted that she was guilty. <laughs> and the only answer is really, this is a concept that we seem to have forgotten today's day and age. That in order to win a war, there's one, only one way to win a war. And that's unconditional surrender of the enemy. This whole notion that you only make, you make peace with enemies is silly. It's, it's ridiculous. You don't make peace with enemies. You make peace with your former enemies. Not enemies that are still enemies. If an enemy is an enemy and he wants to kill you, you don't make peace with them. You, you, you destroy him. You win the war. But it seems that this is a concept that has eluded all the wise sages of our day and age. But this is, this is the only way to win a war. We've had 70 years of peace with Germany. Yes, only after the unconditional surrender of Germany. After we bombed Japan to, 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 to smithereens, the, the two nuclear bombs, we've had 70 years of, uncon- of peace, genuine peace with democratic Japan. That's the only way you have peace is when there's unconditional surrender of the enemy. If Israel would have, at least once in its lifetime, defeated the enemy and caused the enemy to come crawling on their feet for unconditional surrender, we would have had decades of peace. And we would never have ended up with 9-11. But this is, this is a concept that eludes, in our day and age, we seem to be enemy, conflict seems to be the enemy. We shy away from conflict. We just want to get along. Let's all get along. Let's all just make peace. Let's all have a cup of coffee together. But that doesn't work. It's delusion. It doesn't work. It only exacerbates the situation. That won't work. The only way that will work is that there has to be a clear victor. And that is when a person realizes that the divine soul is speaking the truth. The divine soul has no agendas, no ego agendas. The divine soul is pure. It's speaking the truth. And if I listen to my divine soul, and I think like a Jew, and I speak like a Jew, and I act like a Jew, exactly the way the Torah tells me to, this is wholesome. This is reality. This is good. And if a person understands it, and and commits himself to live that way, then... The entire, his entire being will be satisfied, will be happy. Even his ego will be happy. His ego will happily surrender. Maybe begrudgingly, but at the end of the day, the ego will be happy. Because it's a decent life, it's a wholesome life, and it's a productive life. And it's a life that works in the real world. While if a person discards his godly soul, ignores his godly soul, 
doesn't pay attention to Zagadi's soul and just indulges and just follows his ego, his instinct, it's a dead end. It will only lead to self-destruction. It leads to heartache. It exacerbates the conflict because it creates a split inside. Because deep down in the deepest levels, you can't make peace with that lifestyle. You can't. It's impossible. Deep down inside, something bothers you. Something doesn't let you, doesn't agree with that life. So the godly soul can never be satisfied living, living an, an animalistic type of life. You just can't. It can't and it won't. And so it will always rebel. Deep down, there will always be a part of you that, that's, that's, that's very, very dissatisfied. It's, um, and is very troubled. explains why Jews practically invented psychology because we have that divine soul that can't make peace with this type of lifestyle and no matter how much you bury it, no matter how much you the Jew just simply can't make peace, so the Jew is very very troubled that's why most psychologists are Jews most of the patients are Jewish the Jewish soul is just a very troubled soul just can't make peace with this type of lifestyle the Jew can never be happy until they discover their Jewishness, until they discover their divine spark, until they access that divine spark, they get in touch with that divine spark, and start living a lifestyle that's consistent with that divine spark. It's only then, when the Jew starts living a lifestyle that's consistent, that expresses a divine spark, that their whole being, the whole, becomes peaceful and restful and, and wholesome. And you just feel good. You feel joyous. You feel good about life. You feel that inside, inside, you feel whole, connected. When you live a lifestyle that's connected and true to your deepest self, that's when you feel good inside, on the deepest levels. So this is the only way to really resolve this conflict. It is written, however, one nation shall prevail over the other nation. The verse refers to Jacob and Esau. In terms of a Jew's spiritual life, it is understood as an allusion to the divine soul and the animal soul, respectively, who are constantly warring with each other. For the body is called a small city. The two souls in relation to one's body are just as two kings who wage war over a city, which each wishes to capture and dominate even against its will, and to rule with the consent of the populace. That is to say, each king wishes to direct its inhabitants according to his will, so they obey him in all that he decrees upon them. So too do the two souls, the divine soul and the vitalizing animal soul, which originates from Klippa and is therefore the very antithesis of the divine soul wage war against each other over the body and all its organs, the body being analogous to the city and the organs to its inhabitants. Here, too, each soul wishes to direct the city's inhabitants according to its will. The divine soul's will and desire is that she alone rule over the person and direct him, so that all the organs be subject to her discipline following and obeying her dictates, and furthermore, that they surrender themselves completely to her, that they not only obey her, but also surrender their will to her, 
and she desires further still that all organs become a chariot for her. A chariot is even more than just obeying or surrendering. Obeying and surrendering mean, means I have a will of my own, but I'm going to obey you. I'm going to subjugate my will to your will, or I'll surrender to you. A chariot initially has no will of its own. A chariot has no agendas of its own. When you drive the chariot, the chariot is like put it in your hand. Wherever you go, it's just an expression of you. The chariot becomes an expression of you. It's like the tool in the hands of the builder. It's just an expression of you. It's not like you have to force the chariot. The chariot has to catch religion. The chariot has to surrender to you, has to obey you. The chariot has a mind of its own. You turn the car to the right. The car really wants to go to the left. But the car will obey you, surrender to you. You know, the car is a tool in your hands. Wherever you go, it becomes an extension of you. That's the deepest level. In other words, where the, the body becomes so connected to the soul, just like the body and the soul. The body is a chariot to the soul. The body doesn't just obey the soul. When you decide to move your hand, it's not like the body will say, okay, you want me to move? Okay, I'm going to obey. I'll surrender. It's, it's automatic. You don't even have to think about it. It's unselfconsciously. The moment you decide to move, you move. Why? Because the body has no ego of its own, has no agendas of its own. The identity of the body is the soul. The body is so in tune with the soul, it's, even though the body is not the soul, after death, the soul departs and the body is left. But when this person is alive, the body becomes so unified with the soul, you don't know where the soul ends and the body begins. The body itself is alive. It becomes an expression of the soul. The moment you want to move, you move automatically. The body is so in tune with the soul, it has no other identity of its own. It does exactly what the soul wants to. That's the level of unity that the soul wants to, the godly soul wants to achieve in your body. That your body should be so in tune with the divine, with the godly, that it's almost automatically, without even thinking, unselfconsciously. The Torah says, you, you move your hand to give tzedakah, it goes without saying. You don't even have to force yourself. It's not a question of obeying, of surrendering. It's much deeper than that. You become so in tune with the divine, with the godly, that becomes your identity. That you just become an expression, an extension of the godly. That's the ultimate level. That's the desire of the godly soul that it wants to totally permeate the body. Till there's no separation whatsoever between the body and the soul. So it's, it's, it's not only unconditional surrender. It's much more than unconditional surrender. It's, it's the total unification where the body becomes absolutely one and in tune and connected, connected with the soul. And not just 247 of the 248 limbs. All 248 limbs. The entire person. Because he wants total, it's a total reality. The entire person. His, all his thoughts and all his speech and all his action, 24 hours, 7 days a week, the entire person, the entire being of the person should become totally in tune and connected with God. Nothing else will satisfy the divine soul. Not 99%, not 99.9, 100%. Because it's real, it wants the reality to permeate every single aspect of the person. And it will not rest. It will remain restless until that goal is achieved. And eventually that goal will be achieved. The Torah promises not a single Jew will be left behind. Not a single Jew will be lost to the Jewish people. Every last Jew, ultimately, will find their way home. Every last Jew, their divine spark, their pintle will be ignited. 
they will connect, consciously connect, and be proud of their Jewishness. The Torah promises it will happen. It's happening as we speak. Hundreds of thousands of Jews all over the world, but it's continuing to happen, and ultimately, Mashiach will come. It will touch each and every Jew. Every last Jew, and each and every Jew will touch them totally, not just superficially. With their Jewishness, it's not just something that's a small part of the life, even a great part of the life. It will touch them totally. It will permeate every aspect of a Jew's life. That's the goal. That's the only thing that will satisfy the divine soul. Nothing less. It's an ambitious program. <laughs> and it's up against a lot. Why is the divine soul uh, feminine? Muna faith is also feminine. Muna faith, faith, faith is also feminine. Because it receives, you receive from from Hashem. God is the husband. And the Jew, Jewish people are the wife. Jewish people are the wife. That's why the Torah, God is referred to as He, not because the Torah is written by men, but because God is the husband and the Jewish people are the wife. It's a marriage. So the soul receives from Hashem. So okay. so that's why it's a divine soul. So desires that the organs not only surrender their will to it, implying that they do indeed have a will of their own, though it is surrendered to the soul, but rather it desires also that they have no will other than its own, similar to a chariot which has no independent will, but is merely an instrument of its drive. Moreover, the divine soul desires that the organs be also a garment, an instrument of expression for her ten faculties and three garments of thought, speech and action mentioned above, all of which should clothe the limbs of the body and the entire body should be permeated with them alone. The bodies being harnessed in service of the divine soul might not preclude its serving the animal soul too, on occasion. The Alter Rebbe therefore adds the phrase, the entire body should be permeated by the divine soul alone, emphasizing the divine soul's desire to have exclusive use of the body as an instrument of expression, leaving no place for the faculties and garments of the animal soul. No alien would then so much as pass through the organs, Hashem forbid, i.e. the animal soul would exert no influence whatever on the body. The above forms a general description of the divine soul's desire to pervade the whole body. Yalta Rebbe now turns to specifics, which organs would give expression to each particular faculty or garment of the divine soul. It's an analogy. You spoke a few weeks ago about Hashem would not be satisfied until every right. everyone is right. included. Right. Every last person, otherwise, 99%. So this is, this is an analogy, the body... Right, right. Because right. we, we are a microcosm. And the nature of truth is that <coughs> it has to be all pervasive. The nature of truth, of absolute truth, the Hebrew word for absolute truth is emes. Aleph, as the Talmud, Jerusalem Talmud says, emes it's made up of the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, the middle letter, the Mem, and the f- f- concluding letter, the Saf. In other words, truth, absolute truth, by nature, is all-inclusive. It's 100%. If it's 99.9% true, it's 100% false. If it's 1% true, it's 100% true. That's the nature of absolute truth. So just like the absolute truth of Hashem has to permeate 
the entire reality. That if there's one human being who doesn't accept Hashem's sovereignty, who's not consciously aware of Hashem, and doesn't willingly and joyfully accept Hashem's sovereignty, then, in a certain sense, that takes away from Hashem's truth. Hashem is not whole, is incomplete, His throne is incomplete. And that's why the coming of Mashiach is such a central theme in Judaism. Because as long as Mashiach hasn't come, Hashem's name is incomplete, His throne is incomplete, because it's only if Hashem is complete, if Hashem is true, then how do you express that truth? The only way to express Hashem's truth is a, is a world, when there's a world where there is freedom of choice, and yet people willingly choose, every last one of them, Jew as well as non-Jew, every last one of them, one of them will willingly accept upon themselves Hashem's sovereignty, which is the world of Mashiach, when every single Jew in the world will feel connected and proud to be Jewish and be living a Jewish life, when every last non-Jew, six billion non-Jews who are created in the image of God, the children of Noah, the Noahides, will live up to their potential and will willingly enter into a relationship with God and accept God's sovereignty and follow their Ten Commandments, which are the seven Noahide laws, which incorporate the basic moral, ethical, spiritual guidelines and teachings, universal teachings for all mankind. But until that world will come, there's something missing, something essential. God is incomplete. It's not enough that the angels recognize God or certain pockets in Jerusalem and Brooklyn and upstate New York, certain pockets recognize God. If there's one heart and one mind and one soul, then in their life God is not a reality and they're not aware of it and they don't let God into their heart, then it's a direct contradiction to the truth of God. Because what you're saying is God is real 99.9% of the universe. But in my mind, in my heart, He doesn't exist. That it's not truth. It's contrary to the very essence of Emmas. Essence of Emmas is it has to be 100% all pervasive. And what's true in the macrocosm is also true in the microcosm. The body is a microcosm. We are a microcosm. Every human being is a microcosm of the entire world. So this struggle is really the struggle that takes place within us. And the godly soul is restless, cannot rest, and will never be at peace until. They totally win, triumph. When the entire being is permeated, now he's going to spell out in detail how the entire being is permeated with godliness. When the brain is engaged, the heart is engaged, the mind, the heart, and every limb and every organ in the body, and thought, speech, action, permeates the entire person. Time, space, the person, it's all permeated. And only then could the godly soul be at peace. Because that's just the nature of truth. The nature of truth is that it's all pervasive. It's endless. If it's real, it's real. God is real, and th- then God is everywhere. If He's not everywhere, then, th- then, then it's not real. So the divine soul, which has a divine spark, is the same way. If this is real, then it's real not only on Shabbat, not only, not only on Yom Kippur, not only in the synagogue, in a holy setting, in a holy space, in a holy time. It's true, all times, all places, to every, every human being. If it's real, it's real. It's a total lifestyle. 
it's like people who are who are on a disciplined diet. It's a total lifestyle. It's not just a diet. It's a total lifestyle. It's an approach. You only eat in a wholesome way. You, you, you do wholesome activities. It's a total lifestyle change. It's not just a detail and aspect. It's not just compartmentalized. It's a complete lifestyle. If Judaism is a complete lifestyle, it's a wholesome lifestyle, it's a divine lifestyle, it's a genuine lifestyle, it has to affect every part of you. If it, you can't compartmentalize it. If it's just a part of your life, and you separate it from the rest of your life, then, it, then it's, it's not emes. The nature of emes is that it's all pervasive. It touches the essence of your being. If it touches the essence of your being, then it affects every aspect of you that flows from your essence, which is everything. So the divine spark will not rest. That energy, that restless energy will not rest until it reaches the farthest point within the person. Every fiber of your being, every bone in your body, every aspect of your life, everything, it's all pervasive. And that's the Jewish lifestyle. That's the difference between Judaism and religion. Religion is compartmentalized. Spirituality is compartmentalized. Torah, however, is called a way of life. Torah Chaim. Just like life. You can't compartmentalize life. Life is all pervasive. Life touches everything. Everything is an expression of life. It's consistent. You don't take a moment's break from life. right? You don't take a recess from life. Life is all pervasive. Torah is a total way of life. For the Jew, Torah is not just a religious it's not just religion. Religion could affect, it's like music, there's dancing, there's music, and there's religion. It's a part of my life, an important part. That's not Torah. Torah is a way of life. It's a truth. It's a total way of life, an all-pervasive way of life that affects every part of me. Engages my mind, engages my heart, my thought, my speech, my action. Now, Shabbat, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, business, relationship, tying my shoes, eating in the kitchen. Every, there isn't a single aspect of my life that the Torah doesn't illuminate, doesn't guide, doesn't instruct, doesn't elevate, doesn't deal with. There's not a single subject under the sun that the Torah doesn't deal with. From business to relationship, to, because by nature, that's the nature of Torah. It's a way of life. It's all pervasive. It's a truth. And as an absolute truth, it touches every aspect. It touches my essence, the totality of my being. And the godly soul remains restless until that reality permeates every aspect. Nothing less will satisfy. Total and unconditional surrender of the end. And now he explains in detail... That is to say specifically, the three brains, the three sections of the brain, which correspond to the three intellectual faculties. Chachma, the name dot, would be permeated with the Chabad of the divine soul. Namely, in discerning God and understanding Him, that is, applying the faculties of Chachma, the to the understanding of godliness, by pondering His unfathomable and infinite greatness with these two faculties. Through applying to this meditation the faculty of uh, knowledge as well, that is, through immersing oneself in the subject of God's greatness with the depth typical of that, so that one not only understands this greatness, but actually feels it. They, that is, his aforementioned faculties of the Chachma, the engaged in pondering God's 
greatness will give birth to an awe of God in his mind and dread of God in his heart. So that is the faculty of deep, deep uh, immersion or, or of depth to be able to um, apply yourself and to focus and to concentrate and to think about it deeply, to take that that you already understand and grasp and then go deeper into it. Like really try, till you get a feel for it. And then it comes alive to you. It's only when you, because you can understand things and many people are brilliant brilliant minds and they grasp and they comprehend and they understand but it doesn't affect them it doesn't move them it doesn't change them it doesn't turn into conviction it doesn't inspire them it's abstract it's knowledge it's no it's it's understanding but when you go deeper into it until you start feeling it you you, you feel the soul of it and you start feeling it, then it comes alive to you. Then you personalize it. You internalize it. You integrate it. It comes alive to you. And then it stirs up your emotions. It evokes an emotion. It evokes a response. Now it becomes personal. Now there's something touches you inside. And you react. Something clicks inside. You connect with it. You have a feeling for it. And then it becomes animated. It comes alive. And then you start feeling an attraction or, or the opposite. So this can give birth to a sense of awe of God or a sense of love and a powerful love, passionate love and attraction to God. So that is really the key. It's the connector. It's the ability to meditate and to focus. Thus, not only his mind, but also his heart will be permeated with the faculties of the divine soul, the mind with the divine soul's Chabad faculties, pondering God's greatness, and the heart with the divine soul's emotions that he had just mentioned and the love soon to be discussed arising from this contemplation. There will also be born of this contemplation a love of God burning in his heart like a flame, like fiery flashes. His soul will thirst and pine with desire and longing to plead to the blessed Ein Sof with all his heart, soul, and might, as it is written, and you shall love God, your Lord, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So earlier he said, first um, you evoke a sense of awe of God in your mind, and then dread of God in your heart. Because first, the emotion begins in the mind. But in the mind, it's more abstract. It's like you, feel, you have a sense of awe. Dread is more than a sense. Dread is when you start trembling. You only tremble when the fear is right in front of you, when you can feel it. If you know of a fear, so in your mind, I'm afraid. It's more a sense of fear, a sense of awe. It's more abstract. It's more mental. But when your heart starts pumping, your heart starts palpulating, means it's right in front of you. It already it becomes an emotion, a full-blown, a full-fledged emotion. And after the sense of awe, when you realize God's greatness and God's unfathomable and infinite greatness and how overwhelming God's greatness is which leads you to a sense of awe you realize how insignificant we are in comparison to God that leads you to a sense of closeness ultimately it leads you to a sense of the next step is leads you to a sense of a feeling of love towards God powerful love a passion love a yearning a desire to cleave and to connect you, you, become, you become close because the way we become close to God is through that sense of awe the, the less the less ego you have the more humble you are, the more you forget about yourself, 
that draws you close to God. Because ego is static. Ego gets in the way of us really sensing godliness, appreciating godliness. But when you have that sense of awe, and ultimately a sense of, of dread, you feel trembling, you feel you're standing in the presence of the infinite, you're standing right in front of the presence of God, and you feel how insignificant you are, and it puts your ego in place, that allows you to feel godliness. And suddenly you have a powerful love, and a powerful attraction, and a pull, and connection and yearning to godliness. So that's the sequence. First comes the awe, and that leads to love. The love of God. Um, a yearning to, to, as it says in the verse, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. With all your heart means that the heart is filled with the love of God. With all your soul implies that the love spills over beyond the heart to affect all the organs of the body. The feet, for example, will move with alacrity to do a mitzvah. With all your might means loving God to the point where one will sacrifice his life for him. This love will rise from the depths of the heart, that is, from the right ventricle, the seat of the divine soul's emotional faculties as mentioned above. The kind of love that the divine soul desires entails that the heart be inlaid with love from within. And furthermore, not only would the love be, as it were, on the surface of the heart, but the heart would also be full, with the love occupying its entire space, as it were. And furthermore, it would be indeed filled to overflowing. That is, the love would overflow into the left part of the heart to affect the emotional faculties of the animal soul which reside there as the Alta Rebbe continues. The love would thus inundate the left part of the heart as well to crush the citra aqua, specifically the element of evil water in it, in the animal soul, meaning the lust emanating from the Kalipat Noga. When your heart, the depth of your heart, is filled with this emotion, with this passionate love to God, with all your heart, all your soul and all your might then it flows over just like when you have a cup it overflows when you can't contain that love and the love just overflows when you feel that inner excitement and that inner thrill and something moves inside of you something stirs inside your soul something shifts inside your soul then it will affect your body will affect your ego. It will affect the person. You can't remain indifferent. The excitement, the enthusiasm. You know, enthusiasm is contagious. So when this heart is on fire, it will affect the animal soul. The animal soul, as he said earlier, its headquarters, its foundation is really in the heart. It has a natural desire for fun, for life, a will to live, a passion for life, hot-blooded, thrill-seeking, fun-seeking, instant gratification. It's not motivated by intellect, by philosophy, by rational. It's motivated by ego, by pleasure. by That's its motivation. That's the drive. The godly soul is motivated by awareness, by something intangible. The godly animal soul is motivated by, by material, 
by, by physical, by emotions. And its emotions are very natural. So the animal soul will not be affected by the deep, deep awareness of the godly soul, the deep understanding of the godly soul. It's too abstract. The godly soul is getting excited about God being infinite and about God's infinite greatness and God's unfathomable greatness and presence. And it just it doesn't affect the animal soul. The animal soul is not, doesn't get excited about these things. doesn't understand these things. It's way beyond, it's, it's way over its head. It doesn't respond to godly things. The animal soul doesn't respond to godly things. The animal, it's not the language of the animal soul. The animal soul responds to a good piece of cake. It responds to physical, material, tangible, sweet, delicious, fun, exciting, thrilling. That's what the animal soul responds to. You're going to start talking to the animal soul. God fills the world and God encompasses the world and God is infinite and the world is nothing to God. What are you talking about? It doesn't, doesn't speak the same language. But when the godly soul, as a result of its deep meditation and reflection and understanding, stirs up its heart, and the heart is on fire, now you're beginning to tickle the animal soul. Now you're beginning to reach the animal soul. Because the animal soul responds to emotions. Enthusiasm is contagious. Enthusiasm? Passion? Excitement? Now you're talking my language. The animal soul can't, be, can't help but be affected because the animal soul is a bundle of energy. And when the bundle of energy sees that there's, there's stirring and there's excitement and there's thrill and there's it's just overflowing from the divine soul, you grab the attention of the animal soul. And the animal soul responds because that's what it's looking for in life. Ultimately, what's the animal soul looking for in life? Excited. What's a person looking for in life? If you had all the materialistic indulgences in the world, but you're jaded, it doesn't excite you, it doesn't thrill you, it's dull, it's, it's, it has no interest in you. Your interest is you're looking for thrill, you're looking for fun, you're looking for excitement, you're looking for energy, you're looking for passion, you're looking for something novel, something new, something to excite your passion. That's the pursuit. That's what the animal soul wants. Not just material. Material is it's not the material. You want the fun, the energy, the passion, the excitement. And when the animal soul sees that the godly soul is on fire, it's passionate, it's fiery, it's alive, it's vibrant, is is excited, it's thrilled, is all stirred up. Now I want that. I'm listening. I'm all ears. You've reached the animal soul. You've made contact. You're getting through. We're communicating. We're talking. We're on the same page. Now you understand, you're beginning to understand what, what this is about. So the animal soul starts getting excited. So that's what he says when it pours over. When the heart is on fire, until it can't contain itself, it pours over, that even the animal soul starts sensing this excitement and this thrill and this passion. And it affects the animal soul. Now the animal soul, wait a minute. I never would have suspected in a million years that going to shul should be, could be so exciting. Or doing a favor to someone could be so exciting. Giving tzedakah could be so exciting. Or studying Torah could be so exciting. I always thought that stuff is boring. Stuff is... 
but I see the animal, the godly soul is so excited. And we're not we're not going to Las Vegas. We're not going to Disney World. We're just going doing something godly and divine. And look how excited the animals, the godly soul is. Wait a minute, I, I like that. I want that. I want passion. I want life. I want. Give me some. So now we're reaching. Now we're communicating. Now we're talking. I have a question. Why is that <clears throat> of a temporary nature? Like in Shul on Yantuf, okay? You're really at peace and, and enjoying the truth of the whole thing. Why is it of a temporary nature? It's a very good question. Because although a Jew is joyous every day of the, a Jew should be joyous every day of the but the different levels of joy is like when you're joyous about something so you're smiling right everyone sees you're in a great mood it's written all over your face you can't hide it what? but when you're really excited it pours over you can't just keep it with a smile you start clapping your hands you start jumping up and down if you're really excited so the different levels of joy Every day of the week and when we're joyous, it's, it's contained joy. It's a limited joy. On the holiday, there's such a revelation of godliness on the holiday, the soul is just overwhelmed. And it just stirs up such a level of joy, you can't contain it. It pours out. And therefore the day becomes a holy day. We get dressed up in our finest. We eat delicious food. We celebrate. It's, it's a whole because the joy pours out. It becomes overt. When the joy pours out, it sweeps up the entire person sweeps up the animal soul sweeps up our whole world becomes uh, uh, becomes joyous so that's the the nature of a holiday the nature of a holiday is it is a revelation of godliness that, that stirs up such a level of joy that it just pours out as he's describing here when the love is so full it just overflows it overflows and it can't help but affecting everything around it so when the godly soul reaches such a level of godliness that the soul starts singing and it gets all excited and, and it just affects the whole person. We get dressed up nicely, we eat good food, it involves the whole person. It's not contained only in the heart, in the spiritual level. It, it also affects the animals. The animal soul also starts getting excited. It's a holiday for me too. Not just a holiday for you, I'm also celebrating. I come to shul, dressed up nicely, delicious food, because... It affects when the godly soul has reached such a level that it overflows, then it excites also the animal soul. The animal soul also becomes elevated. But that's only on a holiday. We can't achieve it every day. Unless the tzaddik. The tzaddik is like on that level every day of his life. But for us, for the average, the Jew... I'm not sure you answered my question. (laughs) So what... What happens when that holiday is over? That you were well, we, we we benefit from the holiday because the fact it's a fresh memory. That's why we need it three times a year. Sukkot keeps us going till Pesach. Pesach keeps us going till Shavuos. Shavuos keeps us going till the next holiday. We have enough of a memory. The memory is still fresh that it carries us along. It's enough when you remember, you re-experience in your memory. So it gives you that energy and that strength to carry you through the winter. So. Um, but we need to refresh it every once in a while, because otherwise we, we, uh, we forget. So although we can't be in that level every day, but once in a while Hashem opens a window and allows us to taste that depth, to taste, to experience something in a much deeper level, and that 
uh, inspires us and affects us. But shouldn't we want that all the time? Of course, we always want it, but we can't, we can't necessarily achieve it. During a holiday, there is a revelation of godliness that, that just flows over. That's beyond the ordinary. You know, a holiday is not just a commemoration of events that happened in Jewish history, it's a reenactment. Whatever godly revelation happened the first time happens again each and every year. It touches our soul very deeply. When you're sitting at the Seder, it's not just we're dressed up nicely and we're sitting at a beautiful Seder. It's, it's something that touches us very deeply. You can feel it in your soul. You feel special. Something is happening. It's an experience. Something real is happening tonight. When you're sitting at the sukkah, something real is happening. In Kippur, it's a holy day. You feel it. Your soul feels it. Something real is happening. Your soul is excited. You feel that excitement. Not only you feel, the animal soul feels it. Your whole being feels it. That's why you dress up nicely, you eat nice. It, it touches the whole person. You're excited. Something stirs inside of you. And that's a special day. It doesn't happen every day. So, of course, we aspire. That's what we aspire to, but we can't achieve it every single day. But we see what happens when we do achieve it. When we, on a holiday, when something stirs inside, it, it affects the whole being. Not just the animal, not just the godly soul within us. Not just the godly soul that celebrates the holiday. The animal soul celebrates the holiday and gets excited about being Jewish. Everyone's in a good mood. Everyone is happy. You're celebrating your Jewishness. It's a beautiful setting. It's com- it's beautiful, comfortable, because it affects when the animal godly soul is excited. It affects the animal soul as well, because the animal soul is just a bundle of energy, and it can't help but respond to energy. Energy responds to energy. Enthusiasm is contagious. When the godly soul is so excited, is brimming with excitement, is stirring, is, is, is the animal soul gets excited about something godly, which is a novelty. Naturally, the animal soul is not excited about godly things. The animal soul gets excited about external things, superficial things, material things, empty things, things that are inherently empty and meaningless. But it's very attractive. But when the godly soul is so excited, the animal soul starts getting excited about godly things, about substantial things, about genuine things, about deep things, about real things. As mentioned in chapter 1, the animal soul element of water gives rise to lust for physical pleasures derived from the Kalipat Noga. Now the animal soul spirit of lust is the Kalipat, counterpart of the divine soul spirit of love for God. Thus, the divine soul's intense love of God has the power to crush the animal soul's lust for physical pleasures. The effect of a divine soul on the animal soul's element of water would be to change and transform it from a lust for mundane pleasures to a love of God. As it is written, you shall love God with all your heart, which our sages interpret, basing themselves on the use of the dual form of the word, which allows the verse to imply with all your hearts, with both your natures, with your good inclination and also with your evil inclination. Accordingly, the evil inclination, that is, the lust of the animal soul, must also come to love God, and this too is part of the divine soul's battle plan. In other words, the battle plan of the godly soul, when the godly soul wants to triumph, triumph isn't when it defeats the enemy. And the enemy surrenders unconditionally. That's not the triumph. Why? Because even if you defeat the enemy, and the enemy condition, uh, surrenders unconditionally, the enemy could still one day work his way back 
The enemy remains an enemy. I've subdued him. I've subjugated him. The ultimate way to triumph is when you've transformed the enemy. You've changed the enemy. When the enemy is truly no longer an enemy. Yes, you make peace with the enemies, former enemies. When the enemy becomes a former enemy. When the enemy now becomes a friend. Then you don't even have the potential to revert back. Because the enemy is no longer a friend. Like with the collapse of communism. The collapse of communism. When, when, when the Eastern, that Eastern bloc became open and democratic, then that, that leads to, that led to a, a, a long-lasting peace because it's not that America defeated communism. Communism itself collapsed. Communism itself transformed itself into an open society. And democracies don't go to war. So it, it, it's, it's a much deeper defeat. It's a much deeper triumph. If we would have defeated the enemy and subjugated the enemy and crushed the enemy, I'm not guaranteed. I don't know if this will last. Today I won the war and tomorrow I can lose the war. The enemy can regain his strength and today I vanquish him, tomorrow he vanquishes me. But when the enemy ceases to be an enemy and the enemy becomes a friend, then he's no longer an enemy. It's like the Baal gave an analogy. He's explaining the difference between Musr approach and the Hasidic approach. He says, you catch someone robbing your house. Fine. You grab a hold of him, you put him in jail, you lock him up. What's he doing all day in jail? He's thinking, how am I going to escape so I can go back and rob you again? So, yes, I've controlled the enemy, but the enemy is still there, lurking beneath the scenes and trying and scheming and plotting. So I don't feel 100% safe. The ultimate way to feel safe, imagine if you take the enemy and you sit him down and you truly change him. He becomes a friend of yours. Then you sleep like a baby. You know, he's not plotting. He became a friend. He's on my side. That's much deeper. It's much more difficult, but that's much deeper. So when the godly soul wants to triumph and wants to have total reign over the city, the microcosm, the human being, the world, the miniature globe, the miniature world, he's not, it's not enough that the godly soul will be on fire and the entire body will be subjugated and surrender and be a chariot to the godly soul. He even wants the enemy to transform the enemy, not just to subdue the enemy, but to transform the enemy, to turn around the animal soul, turn around the ego, take that bundle of energy that, that, that's in conflict with the godly soul, that's in opposition to the godly soul, every step of the way, and turn it around, sublimate it, harness it, and teach the godly animal soul, you want fun, you want thrill, you want excitement, Come to Shul. <laughs> Do a mitzvah. Give tzedakah. You'll, you'll. And when the animals still start getting excited about these things, then, then there's no enemy. Then there's no more superpower conflict. There's no more enemy. There's no enemy from the beginning of creation. Cain and Abel, there's an enemy. There's a conflict. Jacob and Esau. But with the collapse of communism for the first time in world history, there's no enemy. There's no real enemy. Except the so-called, if it's real or it's not real, so-called war against terrorism. But there is no enemy. Because we have turned around, the enemy has become a friend. Just like in the macrocosm, the ultimate goal is Mashiach. Because Mashiach will come, there will no longer be an enemy. That's what will be the ultimate redemption because there will, no, there will be no reverting back because the enemy has been transformed. The entire world, Mashiach will come, will be transformed. Everyone, Jew as well as non-Jew, will recognize and willingly accept Hashem's sovereignty. And the same is true in the microcosm. The godly soul will not rest and not be satisfied, not be content until it has totally transformed your entire being. 
not only that you do the right thing, and you think like a Jew, and speak like a Jew, and act like a Jew, but you shouldn't even be tempted to do the wrong thing. Because all that desire, and that pull, and that instinct has been pulling you in the opposite direction, you want it, the godly soul wants to turn that around, that you should be pulling. All roads should lead to Jerusalem. You should be pulling. With every, every aspect of your being, you should be pulling in the direction of godliness. You should be attracted to God. You should only want to do the right thing. You should be tempted not to do a sin. You should be tempted to do a mitzvah. Can you imagine being tempted to do a mitzvah? With that fire, with that temptation, the same temptation that people have to run to Las Vegas, you should have a temptation to run to, run to Shul. Then, the godly soul has triumphed. And until then, it's not, it's not satisfying. It's a, it's, a, it's a lifelong process because, you know, the animal soul... You know, needs constant. Needs constant. Uh, you have to constantly engage, and educate, engage in the animal soul, educate the animal soul, and harness it, and guide it, and educate. That's education. So it's a process. It's a long process. But when you educate, you're really changing. You're really reaching. You're really communicating. You're really touching. Because you have to engage the entire person. Person has good, as bad, as ugly. We have all different parts to us. If the godly soul just runs off to the mountaintop and sits and meditates and ignores his human side, his, his ego, his thrill-seeking, fun-seeking part, and just divorces himself from the physical world, that's escapism. That's not Judaism. That's Eastern mysticism. That's not Judaism. That's the easy way out. That's the cop out. Judaism doesn't let us off the hook so easy. That's easy. Jesus says no. Your mission is not accomplished until you engage. Bring heaven down to earth. Engage in the animal soul. Bring it up with you. Elevate it. Transform it. Change it. Reach it. But you have to engage. You have to reach it. You have to touch it. If it doesn't touch the animal inside of you, if it doesn't touch every aspect of you, the good, the bad, the ugly, if, it doesn't bring, if you don't bring all of that, which is why the ultimate service of Hashem in the temple was sacrifices. What are animals doing in a temple? Temple should be a place of serenity, peace, deep meditation. What do you have? Cows running around, <laughs> mecking and, and blood. And this. What's, this, what are you doing? What's it doing in the temple? The holiest spot of, uh, for Judaism. But that's the whole point. Don't come to Hashem with your, with your divine, sublime self. Come to me with your animal. I want your animal. I want you, the real you. Don't come to me with this abstract person that's not real, that, 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 that's, that's this divorced and disconnected from the real you, the human you, the real you, the thrill-seeking, fun-seeking part of you. I want your whole being, every part of you, together. That's, that's Judaism. That's education. That's transformation. That's real. And nothing less will satisfy the godly soul. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.